Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2021. Episode 346, RPGs Without Obvious Combat Mechanics. Presented by Mo Poplar, Michael Lowe, and Jay Grants. Why can't I hit it? RPGs without obvious combat mechanics. Hey folks, my name is Mo, and uh, I'm going to introduce my fellow panelists to talk about uh, combat mechanics in RPGs and why they're optional. How about you? Let's start with you, Jay. Hi folks, I'm Jay. Um, before I, I say more about myself, I'd like to acknowledge the Gabrielino Tongva peoples as the traditional land caretakers of Tavangar, Los Angeles Basin, South Channel Islands, in which we reside. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. I'm Jay, and uh, she and her are my pronouns. I've been designing and self-publishing games for the past three years. And that's actually when I also started playing story games in general. And I'm glad to be here with Mo and Michael, and I'll hand it off to Michael. Um, hi, Michael. Uh, he, him pronouns. And uh, yeah, I've been building games probably since I realized that was a thing you could do. I think I was 12. Um, but I've just recently gotten into the uh, the, the selling them aspect. Um, been developing things for a while, and I'm also teaching uh, writing online using role-playing game mechanics. And as far as nonviolence goes, it, it's an issue for me because I work with kids, so it makes me think about it. And I'm Mo, pronoun he, him. Uh, I've been a game designer for a couple years now. I have two games under my belt, Shibuya Nights and Holdfast Station, and uh, I'm kind of constipated with a bunch of other games to include uh, Spaceport Cantina, Bullet in the Blank, Gimme That, Dragon Battle, and Bun Amigos World Travel Board Game. Uh, yeah, all kind of stuff going on. Um, just for uh, viewers, if we get a little too uh, comfortable, um, Jay, Michael, and I are all part of a RPG design group in Glendale, and uh, you're all welcome to join us every other Tuesday night at the Glendale RPG design group. Um, we should probably put that link out. <laughs> I'll figure yeah. that out. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Story Games Glendale, you just look it up on Meetup. Yep. But we will also, Lucas, will, somebody will put it in the chat. Thank you, Lucas. Um, okay, so let's get started. Um, as a designer, what's the big deal with uh, combat in games? Uh, let's start with you, Michael. Um, what's the big deal? I don't know. Uh, I guess for me, I first started, let's say, restructuring the way I approach design when I started playtesting an educational RPG that I run online for kids at luckoflegends.com. So I teach writing, and I teach it through uh, a narrative game where kids have the ability to build the world. And when I was beginning online, I was really looking hard at the digital tools that were available and realized that most of the games that had materials available 
required combat and, and centered combat as a major way of interacting with the story. And it was a huge element of the story. And I had multiple kids who weren't interested in fighting. And I had other kids uh, who I really had to question myself as an educator and my values. Um, if I were encouraging combat as a way to resolve conflict, what kind of message was I sending? So it made me really reapproach design and start from what's interesting in a story. Um, what makes the story compelling? What makes the story dramatic? And the answer was often not combat. Um, some of the most <laughs> edge of your seat moments in the games that I run for kids actually come from my, uh, my monster high school game. Where kids are using, you know, they're, they're using every monstrous power at their disposal to make sure they get to class on time and terrified if the teacher asks a question and their, their teenager is trying to scramble for an answer. So that kind of drama, everyday drama, is really powerful and important uh, for people to experience and for kids to play through in order to model responses. And you know, at some point in every game, I've, I've asked some kid who said, you know what, I really want to punch this guy. I was like, okay, cool. Question, what would happen in real life if you did that? And every face in the, in the Zoom is like, ooh. You know, and a whole bunch, inevitably, one kid will be like, oh. And, you know, the, the kid who's been asked, like, oh, things that go bad. I'm like, yeah. So, you know, let's think about it. What do you think you could do to solve this that might not make things worse? Nice. Um, so that's my approach, and that's sort of where I've come into design from a nonviolent angle. And, Jay, as a di designer, how do you approach the, um, the fighty-fighty in games? Um, well, I've thought about this, and... I looked at all my games, so I have two games that I published, The Newly Arrived and We Are Cyphers, both not dealing with combat. And I have other games that are in the, right, like revision stages, like Dreams of the Aquarium, At Six, and um, what's it called? Also, no combat. And the fact is, I'm just not familiar with combat mechanics, most, most of them. Um, physical violence is simply not built into my game. So for me, it's not that I'm opposed to them or I even necessarily consider them. It's just not something that I am compelled and drawn to. Maybe for lack of familiarity, maybe, you know, I just, I just know that for me as a player, world building is important. So much fun. Uh, speaking from a place of feeling is the, my core. And a lot of yes and. That's, to me, the most exciting parts of these games is building together. Like, I love that emotional storytelling and that collaborative effort in that table, that generosity. So for me, it's not that I'm like, no to combat. It's more like I start from a place of what am I feeling? What am I seeking to heal? What am I seeking to instill? What am I, what are other people what can I how can I help through my games other people who might feel the same way? So it's starting from that core. So it's not that I'm saying no to combat. It's more like I'm just coming at it from a different angle. How about you, Mo? What are you, how are you approaching <laughs> this whole well, thing? Well, um, I think I started with uh, AD&D before it was second edition because it was it was just the the better version, mm -hmm. and I graduated to Champions where you literally spent um hours days uh configuring the best way to make your superhero hit super villains and i did that for about uh 15 20 years 
and that's uh, my history in gaming. <laughs> so um, for me, I was that person who was always trying to play the game for with 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 for for you know the story and kind of when i discovered story games i was really impressed that here you had these games that they had a very different approach and um i then in turn wanted to design a game that i didn't see out in the space still um where you know combat was a choice but not the only choice you could make and uh that was uh, Shibuya Nights, and I just found myself kind of drifting even further in a diff another direction to wonder, you know, is this how, um, is this the only opportunity for drama? Is this the only opportunity okay. for tension? Um, are are there other stories that can be told that um, that, that approach problem solving in a different way? And uh, that's when. Um, yeah, well, I wouldn't say that's when, but I think that was the spirit that I went into uh, designing um, Holdfast Station with, with uh, this guy, uh, Michael Lowe. Um, and he has a bunch of other stuff to talk about. So I'll, I'll talk about that. And, you know, it's just really about um, <laughs> uh, approaching storytelling from the spirit of, okay, the most valuable thing is us having a community. And like, how do we if we're gonna fight, if we're gonna struggle, like let's struggle to keep the community together. And and what if our problems we can't hit our way out of, you know? So um, I found that to be very compelling. And to me, the next evolution of what I was sometimes not seeing in some of the story role-playing games. So that that's that's me. Uh, I do like a, a good uh, game that where people have guns and they go out and they solve problems the old-fashioned RPG way. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, like variety is good. My I will opinion. say, I will, I will say, you just just uh, reminded me of a, a line from a student who's in one of my games. Uh, we were talking about how difficult it was to find graphics because I'm very into world building. Jay, uh, what you said about yes and, um, I would like to yes and that. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, one of the things that's so great about, I've played uh, Dreams of the Aquarium with you, it's all about community, it's all about emotion, and it's all about storytelling. And good stories, I, I often think of violence as kind of a, I'll just, I'll just play my hand here, I kind of think it's a cheap choice narratively. You can inject drama into anything if you create a moment of violence. It's a quick way to make things move and make everyone feel a sense of danger. But I also think it's become kind of a, a, a tired mechanic. It's the, mm. it's the thing you default to because that's going to create drama. And I can't tell you how many games I've seen where everybody at the table was running a combat and they were bored out of their minds because combat right. had ceased to be dramatic because it was the only thing anyone was doing and the sense of stakes was gone. Um, and just to refer back to that question of, of what is the drama and how do you create drama without combat, Old Fast was, you know, it's a labor of love for me too, and I've got another game up on itch called Zero Samurai. And this goes back to your, um, your statement about operative gaming, narrative world building together, Jay. And I'd like to hear you talk more about it because I know you're amazing at it in design. Um, 
In, in Zero Samurai, I had read uh, Compound Cinematics, which is by one of the scriptwriters for Seven Samurai, uh, Shinobu Hashimoto, who incidentally turned out to be my, uh, my life partner's grandpa. And I met him and he gave me the book. And a lot of the things he said about how Kurosawa's script writing team approached writing a story um, were very powerful pieces of advice for me on how to approach writing a game at a table that everyone had a different role to play, but no one person was the storyteller. Everyone was collaborating to tell story together. And so sort of creating that space in a game and that structure in a game where everyone gets to tell stories, I found kids find that much more compelling, getting to tell a story about a place they're going to go, a, a fantastic magical creature or creature on another world that they're going to encounter. And when they see that come to life in the game, it's very powerful for them, much more so than I won at combat. Let me let me let me lean into that because all of that sounds, um, I think, very high-minded. I'm, I'm going to be the cynic, right? Okay. <laughs> that sounds cool. But what's fun about the game? Um, I know that rolling dice and the, the 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 tension between whether or not you win a fight can be fun uh, we we've, we've established that those games are popular um but i i guess i'm curious as designers um if if combat isn't the bar um how do you design your 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 game as fun let's uh, let's start with you jay What's i mean the again fun of your games again Michael mentioned it in in his game, the monster, you know, like like the monster hearts when like um, not monster hearts, the you know that 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 kid trying to get to 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 his class to their class on time. Mm-hmm. We all live with tension and drama in real life. That has nothing to do with combat. The fact is, our emotions when we are heightened and elevated, there is real drama there. And the, the, the tricky part with that is even though, so a lot, all my games are pretty much emotional storytelling. Like that's what it is. Collaborative, shared fiction regarding the, the, the things underneath. And um, what's the tension and drama in that is that that can hit really close to home. So the important part of that is as long as I am giving agency to my players, I am considering not only safety tools, but debriefs and things like that to cushion and scaffold and support my players, then they've got that power, that creative power to make things as scary, not dealing with combat, scary as in like, oh my God, how about if they're going to find out about my secret? That's Mm -hmm. not going to lead me to my goal. So there's already enough tension and drama without including fighting or killing and and also again look i i wrote something down for this whole thing i just like thought about it i was like again in my games too you have the agency to describe physical violence it could be as much as you're giving a backstory to your character or you're you're creating character develop in your character you know or you're just moving the story along so you can describe violence as long as the table has agreed as to what extent and so a lot of these games, like For the Queen, you know, The Quiet Year, there's a lot of talk about what's the tone of the story first. So, like, I think as long as you build in these things, and I don't know if I'm necessarily answering your question, I'm just kind of redirecting it. But the main thing is 
like the the drama is already there the emotions as humans we already are twisted and messy and unresolved and scared and like there's stuff already going on in real life that we can tap into and put in a game that you, you don't have to create like a big bad monster that you have to kill to kind of get your jollies and like go like ah yeah you know let me get my adrenaline pumping to be honest with you guys dice rolling thinking about stats thinking about the things like what does that number mean that stresses the hell out of me and is a high <laughs> it is a cognitive load for my brain as a player that i'm like ah can you like just i don't care if i hit it just oh. I'm out. Like I, I do tune out sometimes, and I do tend oh. to ask my GMs, "Can you just do the math for me? And can you just tell me if like I've been eliminated?" I, I really, it's not something interesting to me. I'm not saying other people are not interested. In, I'm just saying that for some of us, yeah. that is not what we are drawn to. And I, I hear you talking about themes, but how do you mechanically do that in your game? Let's, well, let's talk I, about like Michael's let's talk about like the newly, hand, so the newly wanna... one second, but just okay. in, the, in, the, in the newly arrived, how do you do that in your game? Uh, create drama. Well, the I think what most people tell me that they love about that game is that you get to play a dual role of being an outsider and an insider. So mm -hmm. already there is tension. You get to play an outsider trying to join an established community. But you get mm -hmm. to play an insider who gets is a council member who gets to decide their priorities to protect the community there at large. So they're like, do we trust you? And both parties, the inside of you, you're playing dual. So like both sides of you is going, when is it okay to trust? How vulnerable can I be? Is this the time? Is this home? Like, so that's already the vulnerability is the tension. The drama mm -hmm. is in, oh, yeah, do like what things do I want in this community and why am I drawn to it? Oh, but like, why do I want you in it? Oh, that's right. We need to thrive as a community. So there's already that kind of tension by giving that dual. There's a voting aspect where you get to just really weigh what you've heard and decide. So things like that. Uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Michael? How about you, Michael? Oh how, do you, how do you uh, approach fun mechanically in your games without necessarily giving everybody a sword and telling them to fight? So um, I'm going to, I'm sort of processing how I want to approach this and maybe I, maybe I will babble. I'm not going to, I'm going to try to be very clear about this. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of research lately about RPGs as therapy. There's been a lot mm -hmm. of neuroscience research done that shows that when you engage people's imaginative faculties, very often the transformation in the brain, the experience they have in a fictional story has a real impact on their actual neurochemical makeup. So you change your mind with fantasy. Fiction has the power to transform, which is something we all colloquially kind of accept as a concept, but it's, it's now being supported by the neuroscience. Right. So one thing that's really important to me as a parent and an educator is, okay, what kind of transformation am I creating, right? What kind of I'm a, if I'm helping somebody move through a narrative that's shared, how do I teach kids how to collaborate on that narrative, build a narrative, and find joy and, and support each other, celebration of each other's narrative? In a classroom, as an educator, you talk about classroom culture. 
And again, you talk about table culture. So creating mm -hmm. mechanics that help foster supportive and collaborative table culture to me is absolutely key to creating something that is a positive experience and a healing experience and a generative experience. Um, it's both teaching social emotional skills, presentation skills, and all sorts of other skills. And I've built mechanically for teaching writing and reading skills as well. So um, second thing I'd say is, uh, one interesting thing you say sort of how do you, I'm gonna flip your question. How do you make a game fun without violence? Here's my flip for you. Um, I think uh, I think violence is not fun. I think it is a way, there's one way in which it is. It's fun when it's cathartic. So a lot of us feel nice. frustrated in our lives, right? And we wanna have the experience of being able to solidify our problems and hurt them the way we've felt hurt by them, which is one of the reasons in our fiction that villains are so compelling, right? I just wanna manifest all the people I loathe. And then I just really wanna like punch them repeatedly. But the truth of the matter is, in real life, that impulse is one of the ones that leads to the greatest amount of tragedies, right? Systemically and culturally. When you start getting violent with people, generally that trauma repeats itself. That person who you were violent with, even if they have been killed, is probably going to cause more trouble for you and for the world because of that trauma you inflicted. So here's my flip, ready? I think kids use violence in my games, and I saw this very early on, in the same way that uh, we use the X card. They use it to remove things they hate. Mm. So they see something, they see a situation they don't like, I'm gonna punch that guy. Somebody says something they don't like, they, I'm gonna shoot him. And I found that very troubling when I noticed that trend. I was like, okay, kids have been taught and I think this is in our culture by fiction, that that's what you do. You remove the things you hate by being violent with them. That's heroic. Right. That's not villainous, that's heroic. So in my games, I've created mechanics for helping kids deal with the things that they actually X-card. Here's the fun part, ready? Being late to class, kids have had absolute moments of, no X, I can't be late. We get we get stressed out by that stuff. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Me. Oh, yeah. You live in LA. You sit in traffic. <laughs> this panel, this right? This panel. This we wanted to do it on time, so we came here half an hour early. So like, we all—it's real. It's yeah, palpable. Yeah. So for me, mechanically, um, I had to think about how do you create. So Jay, what you were talking about earlier in terms of like combat mechanics and and some of those numbers being boring. There's a great article out there. Um, I encourage everybody to find it. There's a repost on Gnome Stew about eight kinds of fun. Because one of the mistakes we make in the space is we talk about fun like it's this universal thing. Eight kinds of fun is a, an academic approach to quantifying these different kinds of fun. So there's like wonder and exploration, sense of community, expressing the self. And then there's things like competition, right? And, uh, and risk and gambling, right? Uh -huh. So all these different kinds of fun can be designed for. And I do right. like to design for some of that conflict and competition. So how do you create a mechanic that rewards kids for thinking strategically and helping each other overcome problems? So I actually just got out of a class this morning where the kids were on Red Ring, which is a casino, a shady casino in the middle of space, looking for their contacts so they could do some corporate espionage on a company named Skull Bunny, which was designed by one of my kids. Um, which is doing something nefarious involving dark matter. And they got super into hacking. And one kid had to generate 
uh, uh, so here's the mechanic. The mechanic is a doom clock. The doom clock says, all right, in this many clicks, something terrible is going to happen. Right. Then there's a build clock. And this is a mechanic that Mo and I developed for Holdfast Station. It's in Zero Samurai as well. And the build says, here's what you're going to try to do with your actions. And the build clock was meet your contact. The doom clock in this case was you're discovered, right? They know you're not actually there to play games. They know you're there for corporate espionage and you'll get kicked off the station. And we had these kids who were, they were blowing story points. I have a mechanic where they gain story points for writing. So the more they write and the more they build the world, the more points they have to change their character and have narrative, narrative push and pull in the script. And they can spend for a reroll. And I had kids, there was one kid, didn't have any story points and was feeling really bankrupt, but was trying to roll to do a, uh, a cover. We're gonna do cover chatter so that the other kid could hack the system on the sly. And they spent three, somebody else spent three story points re-rolling because they were just like, no, they can't, they can't know we were hacking them. Right. And they were so invested that there was a shriek every time the dice hit the digital table. And nice. there was no violence involved, but that risk and drama was real. There was something at stake. And so finding a way to create mechanics that represent, hey, narrative impact matters right? Um, that's like that's not that difficult. Um, and it's, it's hugely fun and much more creative than just, yeah, there's a bad guy. They got a certain number of punches they can take before they're gone. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to split hairs with you on whether or not it's more fun than that. But I agree. It's a different cool, and cool kind of fun <laughs> than that. Um, I, I just want to talk about kind of how we approached uh, this in Holfast Station and Spaceport Cantina. Um, essentially kind of a big part of it, like Jay said, is the narrative frame. Um, started working on this concept. One of the things we said was, um, let's, let's do a space game, but instead of being kind of space wizards or kind of space colonizers, um, I think that covers the big two. Um, we want it to be kind of the crew of uh of alien before uh before they run into the alien you know uh a bunch of proletariat folks they, they have this amazing to us technology but to them it's like it's a it's blue collar work you know like a, a, a semi truck would be amazing to somebody in the uh 1800s but to a truck driver it, it's just work <laughs> you know and uh you know the character yafik koto plays is you know, trying to make sure everybody gets paid right, you know, when they get back. And he is making sure that, you know, he, he he's he's not a unionizer, but he's making sure that, you know, everybody's family gets their square because everybody's working the same amount. And, you know, there are people who aren't doing pulling their load. And there is palpable tension in that film before the monster shows up. And kind of we approached um telling stories in that space where okay so you're you're blue collar salt to the earth people working on a space mine you know um you're not polluting earth with coal you're working on a space mine <laughs> right and you are a space doctor you're a space miner you're a space person who keeps things fixed and um you have the moves that somebody in your job would have you know 
you can fix it, you can scout, you can talk to people and network, you can uh, coordinate folks with a plan, and uh, you you can work really hard. You can struggle to survive. And we have like this cool, uh, I, I think it's slick, cheaty move called make a discovery where the the players can like add a uh, add information to the to the to the to the game. But um, you have the moves that like a mechanic on a space station would have, and then something goes wrong. And so you then have to approach your problem solving from the perspective of not a superhero waiting for the phone to ring, you know, not somebody with a gun waiting for somebody to, to know who to kill, but, you know, from the, the person who's just doing their job. And, uh, you know, we, we found it to be, uh, again, just framing it that way. Um, very satisfying for some. Uh, we have another game. I will play test it. I've already told you guys. I'm down. <laughs> we got we got to get you sounds, in. We, we've had awesome. so many strangers come through, Jay. We got to get you in. Uh, yeah. We have another game, Spaceport Cantina, where uh, you play a off-brand uh, bar where uh, space wizards happen to go by, but you are the bar staff. And you're a bartender. You're a doorman, you're a manager, and you know essentially you're you're keeping the uh, you're you're keeping trouble out of your bar to make sure that your Yelp ratings don't go down. And it's a much more comedic, lighthearted approach to a game. Um, but I want you know, in on that one too. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's problem solving. You know, with with the tools you have at your disposal, and uh, you know, one of the tools at your disposal is running some kind of like side hustle, you know, um, that's like off the books to keep to keep the bar open, you know. So, yeah, oh, I, I again, to like I add something to too. Not only talk, like what's up, Jay? Not only mechanics. So with my game, We Are Ciphers, it's a letter story writing game, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a mystery game, too, because the two of you decide, basically, the whole thing is that you guys are writing, you're encoding and, whoa, sorry, you're encoding and decoding letters for each other, mm. and you're building the story along the way. So part of the tension and drama is you don't know what the other player is going to do in terms of the prize that you both are seeking. They could take it this way or that way. They could add a clue that would force the story to go this way. And you just have to roll with it. And you do have an initial chat where you're talking to each other about your characters and the world and what you're after. You do agree on that, what you're both after. It's usually an object. So I played this where... Um, the story was we were two witches, ex-rivals, and we've wanted to always win the cider competition that the witches have. And finally, we team up to, um, you know, to win this competition. And we're after this one apple called the Crimson Delight. And it only bears one fruit a year, so we're like after it. And we find out our rival, that this, this other witch has it. So the tension becomes that as I started the first letter, I present the like who has it, but I add like little clues like they have a companion. It's now up to the second letter writer to kind of go, what do, where do I go take the story? And there's prompts to help them. Yeah. But they can take it in so many different ways. They can make the, the, this other, this third witch that has the thing that we want, 
into somebody benevolent. And then I would have to create drama in my letter to try to spice it up. There's just constant imaginative challenges mm -hmm. that that's what when Michael was bringing that up, that it's not only through within the game itself, it's also through the medium sometimes. You know, like you can, like, I think, Michael, you mentioned that there was a coloring book thing that you're going to do. Like, there's so many ways we can innovate and add such creativity to our games that still allow us to create fun. Eight kinds of fun, not just one kind, all kinds of fun by innovating through medium, not only mechanics, you know, and not only through themes. So I just wanted to put that out there that, yeah, there's just so many ways to, to approach it. The main thing is tell a good freaking good story. Right, and right. how do you get that is get to the core. The core is our freaking emotions. That That's who we are as humans. You know, we're not freaking robots. We're humans and emotions have to be at the core. So this is this is let, let, let me let me let me let me just reframe. Um, okay, do it. I just want I just want to I just want to ask this question in a slightly different way to find out how Jay really feels about this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I'm hearing is that you guys think that a level of buy-in is critical mm. to making these games work. Um, and um, I, I, I'm kind of thinking back to what Michael said, like violence can be th cathartic if people care. Um, and usually people don't care. And that makes it a whole nother thing. How do you build buy-in to your games, Michael, when, when, you, when you're designing a game? How do you get, like, how, like can't, do, do players just like start off caring about everything that you've written for them? That's, that's interesting because what you just did was you framed it as my game and I was going to write for them. It's not that's my what game. I did. Oh, it's okay. Well, and that's, okay. That's, one of the, that's one of the key elements for me in creating emotionally engaging games because that's what Jay, you said it so well. Like, that's it. The core is emotional engagement. You have to care. Listen, a violent encounter can be very traumatic and troubling or completely boring based on whether you care about the things that are at risk in that encounter. So how do you um, get people to care? How do you get your players to care about the game that, that you, you all's game that you're playing? Well, so my, my, you, you asked an original question about mechanics and it was interesting to hear Jay, you reframe it and say, it's not just about mechanics, it's about content. You know, when I was coming up in design spaces, we used to talk about crunch and fluff as though they were different things. Um, you know, your setting was not your game because your game was this, you know, hard numbers thing that existed separate from the fiction. A hundred percent disagree. Totally incorrect. Um, one of the most important things I think as a designer to recognize is crunch is fluff and fluff is crunch. Everything is a part of how the game experience unspools for the people at the table. So even things like what statements you make in the book kind of descriptions you give. Every piece of architecture to whatever kind of game you're making has an impact on how people understand it and how it inspires people to create and emotionally engage in the game. So going back to that concept of collaborative gaming, it's interesting that you talked so much about our games where we, we uh, centered the idea of community, right? Everybody here, even if you don't like the other people you work at the bar with, right? You got to get through your work day and you got to make it function because everybody needs a paycheck. Mm -hmm. You can't punch the dude at the door because the dude at the door is obnoxious. 
they still have to do their job. You still have to do yours. You got to work it out, right? Same thing on hold fast in Zero Samurai. You're a you're a very uh, you know that one starts with the idea that you're the community of peasants in Seven Samurai, and your two emissaries have come back from town and they've been able to hire Zero. So what do you do as normal people to try to hold your community together and hold up and hold out? against a very dangerous existential threat, which is, and a very physical threat too. I, I hear invasion. you talking about, about settings, but if I show up, I've had a long day at work. Mm-hmm. How do I, how do you, how do you, how, do, how does the game designer get me to lean in to that? I, I, I want to chime in. Yeah, well, what, what I want to chime in right away. Well, GM-less games, that's what I got into. And that's what I designed. That's one way is to make it GM-less or have it so that the table is has the agency and has the collaborative uh, power to say, where are we? What is our tone? What kind of creatures are we going to be? What kind of community are we going to try to do? Pick lists. Putting pick lists in your game, I've seen, we've done that. All of us do that to give a lot of newbies or people who are like, I'm kind of stuck. I don't want to like think too hard. Give me pick lists. So that's one simple design thing you can do to help people kind of go, ooh, or I don't want that, but I want this. Always do like a blank space at the end. So it's like DIY. So like that is one thing is getting that uh, participation of the players, um, agreeing on what kind of tone we want to do, what kind of world. So a lot of, um, there's a game I did, Treasured Oddities. You can be any creature, and basically you all come together, you've been invited, you guys were all adventurers, you're on your last quest, you've been invited to this gallery to showcase what you find beautiful and worthwhile. You could be an ogre, you could be a space blob. That openness in the fiction allows you to be creative and engaged right away. Why do you want to make me play space? I don't want to play space. Then don't play space in that game. You can be a middle earth creature. And mm-hmm. then you show the you show your fellow adventurers, this is my gallery room and you use Google slides. So you're picking images that call to your character from where you come from. So that's another way to build in that interest and go, aha, I don't have to do it that way. I can do it this way, I'm in. And so, the- and. Putting it in a fantasy world, right? We all kind of want to relax at the end of the day. We don't necessarily want to like, so I love that with the space, you know, port, you're like, oh yeah, you, we all can understand we're workers. We all have work, but let's put it in a ma- in a fantasy kind of realm. That makes it fun too. So go ahead, Michael. I was, yeah, no, I was just thinking about Monster High again because um, one of the classic, one of my favorite epic moments, I've got two. Um, in Monster High, which was like a culminating end of, uh, of story arc moment, the kids decided. And uh, one of them was they created a school sport called Smash Ball. Mm-hmm. They decided what the rules were, what the team sizes were, what the positions were, and how to play. And their culminating moment was a playoff game where they got to play Smash Ball against another. And Oh my gosh, you know, the screams, the yells, and we we mapped it out. That one was closer to a combat than a lot of things because they were moving the ball and they were moving around a map and we had mm-hmm, minis. Mm-hmm. Um, another one was, a, was a, a school dance. And several of the characters had decided they were in a band. And they all had different instruments that they played and they were going to play at the school dance. And there was a brewing emotional problem where a large crew of kids were, um, were kind of hep up because of the full moon. A lot of the were creatures were a little bit mm. on edge. And they had to play the crowd 
And each time they had to play the crowd, there was a role involved. And they actually, you know, the kids were throwing down tracks they wanted to to, to be the track to change mm-hmm. the, the mood. And so there was both a lyrical element to the choices they made, and there was a role too. Um, but I'm going to go back to that uh, that concept of GMless games because I love it, Jay. Absolutely love it. I have not grown to become as uh, as brilliant as you. Um, I am still. Uh, I'm, I think of the games I design as GM light. Um, I think one of the things I want to teach people to do is unlearn the concept of of what a storyteller does. I see so many posts on Twitter that are about, and I, you know, I'm new to it, so I'm always like, whoa, don't. But so many people spend so much time, energy, and emotional labor creating these elaborate stories. And then everybody's confused why there's so much loaded and sometimes really unpleasant experiences at tables. Disconnected, right? Disconnected. well, it's so it's so overloaded. You know, I, if I come to the table and I'm like, "Here's my glorious, my glorious plot," don't you appreciate it? And it's not the game you want to play. Well, now I'm hurt, and you're feeling upset, <laughs> and nobody's doing the thing that we came here to do, which is play a game with our friends and have a dope time. Now, for me, I look at it as GM light. So, uh, oh, referred earlier to a project I'm on. I'm working with Daniel Hines of Stories Podcast, which is one of the largest and longest running kids programs for bedtime stories. He tells brilliant fables. My kid actually grew up on his stories. So getting to collab with him has been really exciting for me. Um, We're building a narrative focused storytelling game. And the goal is to help welcome parents and kids in because as a parent, I've been stunned by how much my son has learned playing games with me and how much he's taught me about how to design games. And, um, we put a lot of those, you know, I've been playtesting my system for two years, and that's going into Stories RPG. It's at storiesrpg.com. And the first arc is called Starsworn, and we designed it as a GM light game. So it, the goal is you may never have played a story game in your life before. But as a parent, this is a combination of a choose-your-own-adventure book where you're reading aloud passages to sink your, your kids and you into the fiction, and you're also throwing coloring. You know, all the illustrations are line work and they're designed to be coloring books. So you're throwing that on the table to help immerse them in. And then the rules about how to, how to resolve uh, in interactions come down to you make a role, but then there's, there's, a, there's a pick list of troubles and triumphs uh-huh. that might be appropriate for the situation. So example, if you're helping Chef Susie try to win the Spicy Wing Showdown so she can keep her restaurant because Chef Slicer wants to take it from her, um, you know, maybe you're developing an extra ingredient or you're like snooping on Chef Slicer's recipe or trying to sabotage him or you're riling up the crowd. But you get to choose, and it's explicitly in the instructions. This is not something the teller decides. And you make a roll and you find out, okay, we got a trouble and a triumph. You discuss together what would be fun or interesting or appropriate as a resolution to this moment. It's as not a, about as a parent. As a parent, not no, as a as a kid. You're inviting the kids to oh, the table. Okay. You aren't telling them what happens. You're asking them, what do you yeah. think should happen? You're engaging with them in the creative process. Because taking away people's agency at the table, that's not making it easier for them to play. That's literally just removing their ability to control the flow of story. It's okay to have surprises happen. When you roll, you don't know if you're going to get a trouble, but it's not okay to tell people this is what's going to happen to you and you don't get any say in the matter. 
So we have about 15 minutes left, and we do actually have a question on that point. If it's okay to bring it in. Um, I, ju I just wanted to talk about kind of what I do, and I'll talk about it quick, and then we'll go to questions. Is that okay? Beautiful. Thanks. Um, so as another one of the designers in this space, um, one of the projects that uh, uh, I'm working on with Michael, uh, we're calling it start it started with hold fast station and kind of all mm -hmm. these other games spun off from it and uh we're, we the approach is that it's a no prep rpg and that that is definitely a sailing selling point you know it's like if one person didn't show up from your game blah 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 you, you got something to run but you 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 approach the group you ask a series of questions that is to say you build the world together in real time and then you move forward to resolve a problem that was inherent in one of the questions that you asked of your group. And to me, this is low key, a real sneaky way to get buy-in from everybody in the group about what we're doing tonight. Um, yeah. Like it, it's, it's kind of taking- sneaky like that, yeah. <laughs> It's it's kind of taking uh, one of the one of the the tricks we 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 kind of decoded from uh, For the Queen, which you know is a game that just asks questions, and it asks questions as it asks questions, and the players answer questions. You you're you don't start with a character, but a character starts to develop in you, and you know I found that. I mean, I played the game a few dozen times, and like I've developed way more rich characters in that game mm -hmm. than I have in weeks of role playing in a campaign. So, just giving people an opportunity to kind of think about something, create the narrative in their head, you know, I think is really a strong hook for people having buy-in. Asking the right questions. It's all about those emotional ones that bring out real investment. Jay, you did that so beautifully in Dreams of the Aquarium. You asked so many questions where I was like, oh my God, my little sea creature that's living in this aquarium is now like desperately grieving the loss of a friend or like right? terrified for the future. And I'm like, how did I suddenly care so much about this starfish? But right? that's the brilliance of it as a designer. The questions you ask, the words you use, they can create so many opportunities for the people at the table to buy in. All right, let's go to our question. Yeah. So uh, just as a note, there was a panel on this yesterday called I Questions know. as Mechanics that I definitely I suggest to other people who haven't gotten a chance to see it go, go see uh, those in chat or those watching on YouTube. It was a great conversation. I, mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so we have one person asking who says, for them, the essence of RPGs as a genre is about player agency. The fact that your character mm -hmm. can do anything they want. And so, Michael, you had talked a bit about this. So they And they mentioned how it's doing anything you want, but facing the consequences for it. How do you design to avoid, avoid violence without detracting from this agency, or at least this sense of agency? So, I mean, I've, I've already mentioned the question of doom clocks. Creating a collective mission has been huge. So when you create that clock and you say, here's what's going to happen if no one does anything. And then you say, for each tick of the doom clock, each of you gets a move to affect it. And then you spotlight each character and you say, all right, what are you going to do? Um, what do you think your character's abilities allow them to do that might help prevent this? In terms of character choice, they're still open to do other things whenever they want. And if they don't mind the doom, 
So I've had I've had some people be like, you know what? I'm going to do something that doesn't help the clock because I'm 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 kind of interested in seeing what happens if this happens. So that's a total choice. Um, the other right. piece is player moves. Um, so I have, uh, I'll give you an example. I'm playing a game with some kids right now. It's an educational game. Once again, it's a writing game. It's called Knights of the Microbiome. And in it, there are four basic moves. There's symbiosis, where you try to meld with other little microbiotic critters living in the body to get them to help you out or change their behavior. There's cell power, where you physically use your cellular body in some way. There's microbial power, where you do something cool that only a microbe like you can do. Um, and we've got some very creative ones. Of course, there's lots of lots of kids playing creatures from the butt. As you know, butt is a place where there's a lot of microbiome activity going on, and it's cool like that. And then there's a there's a final move, which is um, diagnosis, figuring out what's going on. Can you be violent using those 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 moves? Absolutely. You can use cell power to bash another microbe. You can use your microbial power to attack another microbe. All of that's possible. Do the moves themselves and the way they're described suggest that? Nope. And there's a real power of suggestion that I think as designers we often forget. The way you design the language of your game changes what people choose to do in that game. When you play Monster High School and one of your moves is empathy, support your friends and help out, connect with others, that tells you something about what kind of game you're playing. Yep. Uh, now, if I have a, if I have a, you know, if I have a move that's called murder, I'm also telling you something about my game. <laughs> right. If something that's primary about my game is like, hey, here's your, here's your two hit stat, and here's your, your armor class, and here are the right. number of hits you right. can take. You've just told me 15 different ways that the point of my character is to hurt folks and get hurt. That's Jay. What you got to say? Um. Well, like in Dreams of the Aquarius, sometimes, sorry, getting to this question, mm. when a character dies doesn't mean it's the end of the game for you. So in Dreams of the Aquarium, that was a very important thing for me because one of the, pre the premise of Dreams of the Aquarium is you're a bunch of aquarium residents and you're ebbing, you're, like you're, you're surviving, but you're also like, there's dangers all the time that you can't control and you're a community. So, but at the end of the game, there's always one that remains. So there was always that, like, that's the tension, right? The end of it. But it was very important for me that I didn't want the other characters or players to sit around when, as each phase goes and one mm -hmm. departs. So I, that's where I built in the dreams, where if you leave the game, if your character departs from the aquarium, you have a lot to do. Do not worry. You get to help be part of the backdrop of dreams. You get to decide how the dream is flowing. But in other scenes as well, you can be invited in to still be part of the, of the action and the drama. So I think trying to understand too in these story games, in all these games that we're all designing, when a character dies or leaves, it doesn't mean we should always try to take care of that player, that they still have some meaty stuff to do. Because it's all about the player, right? Like a character is just something, uh, something that we play. So making sure that the players still have something interesting to do and still that can impact the story and make them feel, again, very part of it still is also, I think, uh, an important piece that can help other designers as they're thinking about their way into non-combat 
It's just to, if you're going to have it, or if you're going to have death, or if you're going to have departure, just make sure your players are constantly still engaged throughout the game. And I just wanted to respond to that. You know, as, uh, as a practice, RPGs are all about player agency. Yes. For me, I think the, the focus of this panel is just, you know, to showcase some amazing designers who are just saying you have a choice. You know, it doesn't have to be chicken, pork, or beef every day. <laughs> you know, and there's really an opportunity to um, have player agency in other ways when you sit down to choose to role play. Um, and that's that's as a player, you know, and you can I mean, we, we decide whether or not we want to, you know, weld a laser pistol pistol or weld a longsword when we sit down to role play. We make a decision and I think there are more opportunities for decisions available than um, most players imagine. What so people call kind of... role playing D and D. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I feel I feel that sentiment as well. Uh, counterpoint to that question is asking about consequences. That there's ways that a lot of discussion so far has been ways that the game kind of limits choice, not limiting it, but suggesting it. But what are ways that you can mechanically support consequences for choices so that you can choose anything, but there is things that consequences that come from it? Uh, you guys mind if I jump in first? Um, I, I for me, I think the 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 big Tada movement moment for me was understanding what happens when you have a negative effect. If you lose life, that says a lot about the game you're playing. If you lose connection from your community as a as a negative result, that says a lot about the game you're playing. If you um if you're going to be, if if you're going to get more powerful <laughs> as as a result of being damaged to the point where you have to be retired from the game, that says a lot about the game you're playing. And as designers, we have all these choices that I think we usually give to tradition when we're talking about damage. I'm done. Uh, Michael, did you have a thought? And uh, we're getting quick. close to our time. Um, make it short. Could. Make it short. Yeah. This is real quick. Uh, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip something. I think it's important to know what a game's about. A game is about shared intimacy. You come together with a table of folks to have a good time, and that means you have to trust those folks and develop a relationship. It's just like an educational situation where you're in a class. You can't learn from folks you don't trust, and you can't learn with folks you don't trust. Same thing's true at a tabletop. So if you're sitting down to a game. How does the game help you decide the game you want to play? So consequences can be fun if you're in a particular crowd who enjoys it in a particular way. Everybody's played a video game where they've been horribly murdering each other and laughing their heads off with their friends, right? Um, that's not the experience everyone wants to have. So I think the important thing is to know the kind of experience you're trying to create and help people achieve and then playing it until you get to a point where it helps that experience happen as effortlessly and as pleasantly and immersively as possible. Um, what are your thoughts on consequences in games, Jay? I mean, I feel like, sure. I, I feel like I did answer it already in the sense that 
again, in all my games, there's no like combat. So mm -hmm. if we're talking about consequences in, ref in reference to combat, I, I don't have anything to say other than, again, in these games, in my games, you can describe violence, you can describe death, and it's more, the more important thing is what happens to your, to the other characters, how they remember you, how do they feel that loss, how are the players expressing that loss, how are you celebrating remembering these characters that have either left or departed. It's connecting with what is the feeling I am now feeling now that these characters are gone. And to me, that's, that's, that's the fun, really, is that celebration or even, like, regret. That's the drama, and that's where the tension is for me. Yeah, I think we've really kind of, like, the whole notion of story games is that win or lose, you told a great story. Um, that at least that's what I take away from it, and I look at games like For the Queen, where you're developing your character, you're telling your character story, and the results of that story matter less than the quality of story you told, and only you have access to that, and you know that is the fun in that game. You're not going to play a campaign of For the Queen, um, I don't think. But, I think it's doable. Um, I think it's doable. Someone Just out there is like, I defy you. Yeah, defy no, me. Defy me. And let me know. And let me know. But um, I think we have, uh, to me, this is a designer conversation. And we have all these design tools at our disposal. And, you know, um, we we can tweak and, 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 and noodle with all of these, like, things and, you know, get different results. And I, I think that's what's awesome. That's why I come to Metatopia. <laughs> Anything else for us? We are just about at the end now. So if you want to reintroduce yourselves and what you're working on. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm Mo. Uh, again, I'm working on Holdfast Holdfast Station. <laughs> the name changed. Like day one. And, yeah. um, and it should be released in March. If you're interested in playtesting, we have a, uh, a playtest module available on our Discord, which you can find at ashyfeet.com. Jay? Uh, my name is Jay. Um, I have published The Newly Arrived, and we are ciphers on itch. Um, you can just go Jay Garant's itch on your Google or whatever browser. And then I'm also working on Treasured Oddities, Dreams of the Aquarium, At Six, and a few other ones not ready to be shared yet. <laughs> and, and hi, yeah, I'm Michael. Uh, you can find me at luckoflegends.com. I'm also on itch, Luck of Legends. You can find Zero Samurai there, Hold Fast Station, a couple other games. My big one right now that I'm working on is storiesrpg.com. This is going to be a monthly uh, coloring book slash choose your own adventure for parents and kids. It's an introduction to tabletop role-playing and it's super fun. And it's going to come with an actual play podcast from the creators of storiespodcast.com. So the goal there is getting everybody into gaming if they haven't had a chance yet. And also yeah, my at luckalegends.com. If you've got a kid in your life, uh, maybe love stories, but hasn't really gotten into writing yet, Come, come check me out. It's all homeschool credited. I'm a, I'm a certified California teacher and would love to teach your kid to love to write. 
Indoctrinating the youth. I love it. <laughs> Only in the right way to choose <laughs> paths. Thank you so oh. much, Jay and Michael, for joining me. Thank you, Metatopia. Thanks to you guys, us. too. Much love, y'all. Bye. Have a good one, everyone. Bye.